Welcome back to the History of South Africa podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 53. We will return to the eastern and coastal region of what would become known as Zululand, but first we'll cover the Trekboer's quick getaway in the Zutfeld. It's crazy town time at Ingrika's great place after Nklambe, his uncle, makes off westwards, and the Khoi in the area decide it's time to fight the Trekboer's once more. By the end of 1800, Kunrad de Base had convinced all Trekboer's and the missionary Van de Kemp it was time to leave the Amatosa king's great place before he killed them all. Nika's vacillations were unnerving, so when de Base suggested they all leave through a cunning plan he had devised, Van de Kemp was ready to go. The reason is not too difficult to fathom. In more than a year of proselytizing, Van de Kemp had managed a scant conversion of five Khoikhoi women and their children. Not one Amatosa had converted to Christianity, and furthermore, Van de Kemp had been forbidden to preach to the people. And the Boers living in the great place were also no help. In fact, while his back was turned, some were helping themselves to his property and were caught doing this. Sarah, one of the Khoi Khoi women who were converted, watched. Whenever they saw him go into the bush for prayer or meditation, or perhaps ablutions, one or other of the Christians immediately ran into his tent to steal. His chests were frequently broken open and his money taken away until at last he had scarcely sufficient to carry him back to the colony. Unfortunately, Van der Kemp was now forced to make his flight to safety with these same thieves in his midst. In their preparation for the departure, Kunrat the base told Nika that the Trekboers were off on a major elephant hunt and taking the missionary with them. Whatever he said to his partner, Amatosa Royal Yesi is unknown, presumably nothing. They formed a large party, 58 all told, including British and German army deserters and their Khoi Khoi wives and children of the Boers. Of course, when they departed the great place, they had to go east, away from the safety of the colony, not west, or Nika would have smelled a rat. They left on the last day of 1800, 31st of December, on a journey that proved to be extremely dangerous. They had jumped from the frying pan into the fire. First, the sand repeatedly attacked their wagons. Then, Van de Kemp almost drowned crossing a river, only to be rescued by Kunrad the base. Considering that Van de Kemp's wife and child had drowned in a boating accident in the Netherlands, which set him on his way to the London Missionary Society, the significance of this event in his life was large. Eventually, five months after leaving Nienke's great place, Van de Kemp arrived at Graaf Reinet to find that a new missionary to replace Edmonds had finally made it to the small village on the edge of the Karoo. His name was James Reed and was made of sterner stuff than Edmonds, as you're going to hear. Edmonds, meanwhile, had been trying for almost a year to leave the Cape, but all ship captains refused to take him, regarding him as a bad omen. Word had leaked out that this young missionary was gutless and had left Van de Kemp in the lurch back in the Zurfeld. However, it's now time to leave our intrepid missionary and head back northeastwards to what would become known as Zululand. Up to 1800, the situation on the coastal section and the plateau had been radically transformed and this transformation would accelerate over the coming years. There were three overlapping phases of change taking place, starting from the last quarter of the 18th century, then running through until after 1870, with the British Zulu Wars dominating events in the latter period. The first change saw the African system, which had existed for centuries, being revolutionized largely from within, although dealing with outside factors. 
Nothing is truly insulated, even North Korea. There's always trappers or hunters or traders moving about on all territories all the time. But in the case of the Zulu Kingdom, this Africanization did not have time to work itself through. By the time the Afrikaner Voortrekkers began to penetrate into southeastern regions of southern Africa from the Cape. The Voortrekkers then defeated the two most powerful African kingdoms of the region, the Ndebele in 1837-8 and the Amazulu between 1838 and 1840. Before the Voortrekkers could take control, the third phase saw the British intervene in an attempt at dominating both the Boers and the Amazulu. So this story on the east coast of southern Africa and the inland region has many layers, many bits that are fascinating and lead to the present to all of us. We have to tread cautiously through the miasma that is the telling of this history. Starting around 1800, colonists and traders from the Cape Colony began organizing expeditions into the hinterland, hunting, bartering beads, copper bars, blankets, coffee, tea, sugar, brandy, firearms and ammunition for ivory cattle and cereals in the main. These traders travelled over vast distances and they were organised. They began to establish permanent trading stations and introduced the idea of money as the main medium of exchange. Missionaries began penetrating the regions as well, as we know from our friend Van der Kemp. So what exactly was going on in what is known as Zululand at the turn of the 19th century? Our knowledge is limited, with oral history the only real source, except for some written records provided by castaways from shipwrecks. We also have archaeology, but this part of South Africa is more humid than the West, and much evidence has been destroyed by humidity. The Abakwam Tetwa Confederacy, as it was known, had eclipsed the Abakwam Dwanwe by the end of the 18th century. More about that in a moment. Dingaswayo is the main protagonist of this Abakwam Tetwa power. What we don't really know, whether from Zulu, oral history or written, is what exactly caused the long-established equilibrium amongst the small autonomous Nguni chieftains of northern KwaZulu-Natal to collapse and to be subsumed by these centralizing kingdoms. Some historians have suggested that it was slave trading from Delagoa Bay that caused the change, but the total number of slaves exported from there at this time was minuscule. The value of trade and social dislocation just don't add up totally. Some say the increased economic change brought about by ivory traders caused the emergence of more powerful entities. The changing faces of Eastern Africa, the new traders from Europe replacing the Arabs, could have altered local power networks. But there's not enough total trade to cause such a significant effect on all societies and landscape. Surely there's some kind of combination, or something else. The area was becoming drier, this we know, and would have had an impact, but is the drying enough to lead to these new, more centralized kingdoms? Another theory within African society, embodied in Amazulu oral tradition, for example, is that the changes were due to individuals themselves, a kind of social exothermic reaction driven by an internal or even a genetically predisposed power. Africanists love this narrative, but it's romantic delusion and one that was ironically used by colonial historians as well. The stories of kings told by historians, by griots in West Africa, or by prose poets in Southern Africa, always feature individuals, so naturally the oral history tends to focus on the exploits of heroes, villains, and their lineages. Just like the Old Testament, people went to war and then begat other people. Dingizwaya and Shaka were obviously the two in Southeast African tradition who spring to mind immediately, also Mzilikatsi and Moshwishu. 
all leaders of great significance and heroic tradition. But the question is, why did they emerge almost simultaneously? What internal driver and external effect caused these individuals to seize the initiative? Some historians have said it was the arrival of Europeans. Most writers have focused on the assumption that the change was directly inspired by whites. Historians in the early part of the 20th century decided this much. Bryant writes that The progressive ideas and activities displayed by Dingerswell do suggest such extraneous influence for, as a pure initiation of the Bantu mind and product of purely Bantu training, they would have had been decidedly extraordinary. Implying, of course, that Dingerswell could not himself have thought up the social changes he was making, someone had to show him. This is decidedly biased by these early colonial writers. Furthermore, there is one big problem with this analysis. It's chronologically out of sync with history itself. Then Dwandwe, Mtetwa and others developed before the full effect of Europeans and their trade and money and power. We know that local providence is more likely to have driven the move to centralization rather than purely an external pressure. As I pointed out, trade between political groups in northern Zululand and Delagoa Bay was consistent and impacted the region, and yet the attempt to show how the Mtetwa of Dingeswaya were all about this trade have floundered on one main fact. You see, the power of Portuguese trade at precisely this time was at a low ebb in the late 18th century. It was weaker and more erratic than the previous 200 years, and most slaves leaving the region did not come from present-day northern Natal or Zululand or anywhere even close enough. It was all more north towards Malawi. Others have suggested that as the region dried up, the pressure accessing resources like water and food became more pronounced, so the clans and ethnic groups tended to congregate in larger settlements, and therefore the leaders became more powerful. Linked to this hypothesis is the belief that population density had increased to a level that meant land and other resources were no longer freely available and weaker chiefdoms were co-opted by the stronger. So the explanation is now the leading hypothesis for a number of logical reasons. One was the increased planting of maize, which remember was not an African crop. It was brought into the continent by colonialism. More food could be grown, more people were supported on the land more pressure on the geography, political change, and so on. The area that is populated on the southeast coastal region supported sweet grasses, which are also limited. We don't have enough conclusive evidence, however, that it was population density. It's from Dingeswayo's time that we can begin painting a clearer picture of the effect of these changes, whatever the main causes. After the death of his father at the end of the 18th century, Dingeswayo ousted his brother, from the chieftainship of the Mtetwa. Up until then, they were a somewhat typical Nguni unit, living in the triangle between the sea and the lower reaches of the Mfolozi and Umtlatuzi river, the latter river, of course, where I grew up. Dingizwayo then made significant changes to how he structured two Nguni institutions. One was educational and the other was the military. Remember from previous podcasts, the Nguni organization was originally based on the practice of circumcision, which had been general but was dropped by the Mtetwa, the Zulu and the Swazi. The Mpondo will also do away with circumcision 50 years later in the 19th century, but the practice continued in the south amongst the Mpondomise, Amakosa, the Amatembu and other refugees who would begin moving about the felt in a short time in the 1820s. Contemporaries from one area would be circumcised together and were usually led by the son of a chief. 
They didn't always gather together to celebrate this. In the north, into Zululand, the ancient pattern of age groups formed by circumcision were transformed as these new powerful kingdoms emerged. The physical act of cutting the foreskin fell away, and the boys from localities of a chieftain were then enrolled in a single military regiment instead. The reasons for dropping circumcision by the late 18th century amongst these northern Nguni people are obscure and still being debated. What we do see is the fact that circumcision lapsed where the overall authority of the chief was greatest. The Mdetwa, for example, whereas it was retained where the authority of the chief was weaker, the Matkosa. As an anthropologist, I know one thing which is hard to dispute globally. Initiation rites are an assertion of authority by an elder generation when they are most insecure. Of course, this sweeping statement can get you in hot water with traditional leaders who become angry and defensive. If you suggest that circumcision or other ancient rites are linked to insecurities and a weaker political hierarchy, then again, anger and defensiveness is one of the emotional responses of someone who is insecure. Ah, convolution and matrices of our time, there's never a dull moment in history. The other really important change I mentioned in passing in an earlier podcast was the manner of warfare which altered significantly during Dingeswayo's time. Before then, young men raided cattle and the warriors of one chieftain fought those of another, but women and children were left alone. After Dingeswayo, the way of warfare became more violent. Men from each homestead were enjoined with those of a neighbouring homestead at the great place of their local chief. They would then march as a local detachment of soldiers to the homestead of that chief's immediate superior, the ruler of the chieftain. As the British found out in the First World War with their town-based units, when one of these was crushed or destroyed in a battle, an entire generation of the male line of that town was wiped out. Better then to be diverse, thought the Amampolo and the British later. Dingeswayo also instituted a new system of age regiments calling up the young men of an age group from all over the chieftain and then forming those into a single regiment. Fathers, sons, elder brothers and younger brothers joined different regiments based on their age. These cut across local and kinship ties. Just a note here, regiments based on age were common further north in Africa and existed amongst the Tswana and the Pedi, for example, but this was an innovation among the Amatetwa of the late 18th century. The change also did not extend further south of the Mzimkulu River to the Amampondo, the Amatkosa, or the Amatembu, or even the Amabatra, who fled from Shaka later. Militarily, organizing these kinds of regiments is very much an offensive or attacking system, whereas defensive systems were obviously more local. If you're planning an attack, you set up units with different strengths and aim them at the enemy, when you're defending, people in one location are usually trying to deflect the enemy, thus their units are more locally inclined. So you can see that Dingeswayo and later Shaka were deploying a system based on attack, not defense. The military structure also increased the power of the chief because the splitting of territorial and kinship lines were now offset by regimental loyalties. There's no doubt that the Tembe and Mabudu chiefdoms around Delagoa Bay were drawn into competition with each other in order to dominate the trading links with the Portuguese, even as their maritime importance waned. The trade of the 1760s through to the 1780s grew until the 1790s when it virtually collapsed. But then American whaling ships began to put in more regularly at Delagoa Bay, and some of the trade was re-established because these ships needed beef to feed the sailors. 
The Americans began to use Delagoa Bay as their base of operations for whaling and then tried to increase slaving by the early part of the 19th century as well. The Tembe and Mabudu were competing to deliver cattle to the port and both grew larger and stronger at this time, extending their domination over the roots of the ivory and the slaves and the beef. The cattle-producing regions lay to the west and to the south, and in the south were the Abakwa and Dwanwe, the Abakwa Tlamini. At the same time, and around 300 kilometers northwest of Delagoa Bay, the Maroteng chieftain began to raid surrounding areas more aggressively. They were trying to control the trade routes to the interior and lay the groundwork for what became the Pedi Kingdom in a short while. The Maroteng collided with smaller chieftains like the Amadzudza and Debele, Masamola, Mahakala, Bampatlele, and Balubedu. Further north around the Sotpansburg, the Venda Kingdom was now also expanding. But the Venda were exploiting another trade route, north of the Limpopo into what is now Zimbabwe. To the south of Delagoa Bay, between the Pongola and Tugela rivers, the rulers of the Mtkumalo and Yambosi chieftains began growing the aegis at this time, the last few years of the 18th century. These two became the Abakwa and Dwandwe and the Abakwa and Tetwa, respectively. They weren't alone on the margins where chieftains had adopted a defensive strategy as these two grew. The most important were the Abakwa Tlamini, north of the Pongola River, and the Amatlubi on the upper Nzanyati. The other were the Abakwa Tlabe, near the lower Tugela River. Each chieftain began to muscle the other, and the Abakwa Tlabe pushed out sections of the Abakwa Tlele and the Amatuli, who moved south along the coast towards modern-day Durban. Then, as we've heard earlier, the Amatuli near the lower Mgeni River and the Mgumazi also grew, pressurizing other groups further south of the Mzumkulu, the modern boundary of the Transkai. What was noticeable by 1800 was the power that the chiefs of the Abakwa and Dwandri and the Abakwa and Tetwa exercised over their people. The age-based regiments had to be used to remain effective as an offensive force. These Amabutu, as the Zulus called the regiments later, needed deployment. Remember my earlier explanation of the Amabutu, brought together initially at certain times of year for circumcision, then to engage in hunting and other paramilitary services. It was a short step for Dingaswayo to pull these Amabutu under his firm control and to use them against other chiefs. They demanded tribute, so he transformed the system. These regiments needed to raid cattle to pay the chief, and lying around being circumcised just got in the way, so no more circumcision. Remember, by doing away with circumcision, that point at which a boy became a man, the chief could prolong the period for which they kept the young men under their direct authority. Remember, too, that women were also enrolled in their own regiments, the Isugodlo, as the Amazulu called them. They'd remain in these regiments until they were married off in return for Bridewell, the Labola. Wow, look at the time. We have to wrap up for this episode. Next, we'll do a sweep of this period with significant international and regional events taking place. Thanks for listening, and to the many sending me notes and ideas, keep these coming. If you'd like to make contact, you can do so through my website, desmondlatham.blog or desmondlatham.com, or direct message me on Twitter, at Des Latham. Until next, goodbye. Thank you.